My thoughts and prayers are with you. One sentence, even like that, so seemingly innocent, has become increasingly controversial. My thoughts and prayers are with you. Maybe you've used this statement, a statement like that before. You may have heard it on the news from a broadcaster. You may have seen it, you may have heard politicians use that phrase after some kind of tragedy or a major loss. My thoughts and prayers are with you. Maybe you've written it in a card to somebody you know or care about. Maybe you've used a kind of phrase like that when commenting on something on Facebook. Or maybe you like something else like condolences or thinking of you, praying for you. One of the favorites I see, hugs. My thoughts and prayers are with you. Now that phrase might be better than flat out ignoring somebody. But it's almost like the generic introductory phrase, hey, how are you doing? At the most basic level, hey, how are you doing? You tell that to somebody who you see on a regular basis, just by saying that, you acknowledge that the person exists. That's really what that's communicating. So my thoughts and prayers are with you. At the most basic level, when you use that phrase, it's I'm close enough to the situation that I must acknowledge that I at least see it. So I'll say this. My thoughts and prayers are with you. Seems innocent, but to some people, it can either seem just ridiculous because it so obviously skirts and dismisses a responsibility that the person has and is capable of doing. Sometimes that's comical, sometimes that's tragic. Uh, it's comical. I think of one example that pops up into my mind is a meme. If you don't know what a meme is, it's like a picture you see on the internet and it has a caption on it and it's meant to be funny uh, or something like that. Uh, this is a meme of Aragon from Lord of the Rings. Any Lord of the Rings fans in here? Maybe not, but you don't need to be. Uh, Aragon's like the mightiest, most valiant warrior in Lord of the Rings and it's the scene where he finds out the city Gondor is in trouble. So he's told that and then the caption is, the caption is Aragon Speaking back, oh, that's awful. Sending prayers their way. Skirting what he is obviously capable of doing. It seems ridiculous. And then sometimes that phrase, my thoughts and prayers are with you, just, it's almost offensive. You don't want to hear it. Think of the most recent mass shooting in Thousand Oaks, California. And the mother of one of the people who were killed there is just almost sobbing and, and angry and grieving and saying, I don't want your thoughts and prayers. I want change. And honestly, who hasn't felt something like that? Now, while real prayer should never be mocked, should never be insulted, and is always a right response, I mean, God says, pray for everything, pray at all times, is never a wrong thing to do. But that instinct of not feeling like that phrase or something like it, my thoughts and prayers are with you, the instinct of, like, that's not totally what I'm looking for here, that instinct's not bad. The Bible tells us to love in word and deed. And you can't read the Bible, including the words of Jesus, without seeing the command and even expectation that God's people care for others, especially those who are the most marginalized and vulnerable in society. You can't read the Bible without seeing that. Even the book of James hints at like this, this instinct in us that sometimes thoughts and prayers or something like this seem so disingenuous. It says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them things they need for the body, what good is that? When you're enduring suffering, some kind of tragedy, do you ever think God responds to you in kind of that same dismissive way? Like, hey, my, 
I'm there for you, buddy. My thoughts and prayers are with you. Like, God, I, I, like, I need something more than that. <laughs> Doesn't that just compound sadness and despair and frustration and even anger over a wrong situation that goes unresolved for a long time? Friends, how do we process that time? How do we process that experience well? How do we sort through the emotions that come with a time like that? How do we feel what God actually feels and think what God actually thinks? Well, friends, Psalm 69 deals with those questions and more. So if you're not there yet, turn to Psalm 69. If you're looking at the Pew Bible uh, in front of you, it's red like this one. You'll find it on page 482, Psalm 69. To the choir master, according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal, must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate. And the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken in my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see. And make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. And let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down. And they recount the pain of those who they have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out from the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am inflicted in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will plead the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. 
Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. It's God's word. The Psalms are unlike any part of the Bible. They're a collection of songs, praises, prayers, and like this one, laments. And this series that we've gone through so far is meant to be both a greatest hits album and also an appetizer sampler. And it's seeing the best of the Psalms and seeing the different kinds of Psalms throughout the collection. Now, if you think about it, God gave us the Psalms not just as a portrait of himself, but as a sure guide to himself. So in all the ones we've went through so far, we get indications of that. That these, if God stands behind all of them, then this is God teaching us how to live and to approach him in any moment of life and even through any emotion of life. We get that most fundamentally at the very beginning of the Psalter, Psalms 1 and 2, which shows us just the way to blessing. And the way to blessing is through the blessed man described in Psalm 1, who we are to take refuge in in Psalm 2. And even the rest of the Psalms that we've considered, God has taught us different languages when we are going through different things, languages that we should all learn to speak. So in Psalm 8, God teaches us the language of praise. Psalm 23, God teaches us the language of assurance. Psalm 51, God teaches us the language of confession. Today, Psalm 69, like many others in the collection, God teaches us the language of lament. Lament. Don't often use that word. It's more than grief and sorrow. It's when evil and wrong are winning And we don't know why, and we don't know how long it's going to last. It's crying out more than just sorrow. And if there is a main point or big idea to Psalm 69, like a lot of other psalms of lament, I think it's this. That when we lament, lament should begin with crying to God. It should continue in trust in God and ends in praise to God. Crying, trust, praise. And even in the sample psalms we've seen thus far, we've seen how each one of them is unique in their own way. They're not all structured the same. They're not all dealing with the same subject. Having read Psalm 69 already, you can look at it with just in big chunks. We'll see the, the major structure of it. See, notice how David goes back and forth between kind of lamenting, his crying, his describing his situation. He goes from that to praying and pleading God, asking God to do things, and he ends in prayer. So really, verses 1 to 5, mainly he is describing what he's going through, lamenting, and he continues that, gets more specific in verses 6 to 12. But then he switches to a prayer or a pleading in verses 13 to 18. Then he goes back to describing and to lamenting in verses 19 to 21. Then he goes back to praying in verses 22 to 28. And he closes the whole thing with praise. We're not going to go through each part of the structure. How we're going to approach the psalm this morning, instead of going through that back and forth cycle, we're going to notice each of the things that David is doing in light of this situation. We'll notice David's lament, how he cries out, how he's speaking of his pain. We'll notice David's prayer, what he's asking of God, all the places that he's doing it. And finally, we'll notice David's resolve. He comes at the end with praise. First, David's lament. We could really describe this whole psalm as a lament, But we want to hone in on David's description of what he's actually going through. His cries of pain. We see this most clearly 
It comes in three different rounds. Round one, verses one to five. Round two, verses six to 12. And the third round, verses 19 to 21. Now, you remember the Polaroid cameras? Believe it or not, I am old enough to have used the Polaroid camera. And you, you take it, and then you get this uh, little piece of photo paper. And what do you do? You, you shake it, and it gets clearer over time. It's kind of what happens with these three rounds for David. He snaps a picture of his life, and as he continues to describe it, the picture gets clearer. And as it gets clearer, we see this picture is really, really dark. The first round of lament in verses 1 to 5. And the feeling that David drives home, just reading that, is a feeling of being overwhelmed, being desperate. And he uses different images to capture that. There's drowning, quicksand, losing your voice, losing your sight. And maybe we can use those kinds of images ourselves when we are in similar situations. Like feeling like we're drowning. I don't know, maybe using those images, we pull the punch a little bit when we don't realize the full effect of what they actually represent. So something like drowning. I'm not sure if we fully leaned into the fact that drowning is a terrible, awful experience. Sebastian Younger, if I'm pronouncing that right, is author of The Perfect Storm, he gives insights into the terrible experience of being conscious and aware that you are drowning. He says usually that once people have been under the water for about 90 seconds, the brain flips a switch and tells the body, all right, not breathing in air is killing me, so I need to breathe in. And then you breathe in water. And for most people, you are fully aware when you first breathe in water. And it is a terrifying experience. And the thing about drowning, the first time you breathe in water, all of a sudden your oxygen is depleting at a rapid rate, which makes it harder to stop drowning once you start. It gets harder and harder to stop. It's overwhelming. And you get more desperate and more desperate. That's what David uses to describe his situation. Drowning. No support. No more voice or strength to scream for help. This vision's starting to fade. And what's put him in this situation? Well, you see verse 4. It's people who've put him there. Ruthless people. David's outnumbered. He's outmatched. And he is out of solutions. And then verse 5 shows that David lays no claim to perfection. God knows better than David that he's a sinner. But in this case, David's innocent of the lies his enemies are pressuring him with. So the picture becomes clearer in the second round, verses 6 to 12. It's there that David describes the specific things that he's enduring, the specific things he's going through. You just glance through those verses, you see words like reproach, dishonor, estrangement, weeping, mourning, insults, mockery. And I'm not sure which one of those is the worst. But I think the, the basic sense we're getting is that there is no escape from this for David. It's coming at him all the time from all angles, wherever he goes. When he is at home, he's estranged alienated. When he's out, even among the best people, even the highest of society who sit at the gate, no one respects him there. He can even go to the lowest of society, the drunkards, and even there he is a fool. And that would be bad just if it was that, just if you were experiencing that. But it gets worse because for David, he's going through all of this because he's devoted to God. He's going through this because he represents God. He says that straight up in verse 7. He says, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. 
Second part of verse 9, he says, These people mock, insult, and hate me because they mock, insult, and hate the Lord. That's confusing and concerning to David. You could picture, you know, Captain America ambassador of the United States, loyal, and he gets sent out to the embassy of a foreign country. And while he's there, maybe five years in, that country all of a sudden hates the United States and declares war on it. And then they start to treat him and imprison him and mock him, all because they hate the United States. And then the United States doesn't do anything. That's how David's feeling. The reason he's getting treated this way is because the people hate the Lord. And God's seeming to allow it to happen. So the third round, a little man comes in 19 to 21. David just gets to the end of himself. You hear the exasperation in his voice. As if he's saying, God, you know what's going on. I'm broken. I'm done. I can't show my face anywhere. I have nobody. I have no solace. I have no confidants. I have no friends. I have no allies. I only have people trying to kill me. This is what's going on. If you'd imagine if we had Doc Brown's DeLorean from 1985, and we could use it to travel back in time and go visit King David. Not sure if that's the first place you would go. And we show up to David at the moment of his life that this psalm represents. And we ask that, you know, generic opening question. We don't really know David that well. David, how are you doing today? And then he just gushes out all of this. Isn't that what it seems like here, Psalm 69? That this has been pent up in David for a long time, and this is just an overflow of his pain and sorrow and grief and despair. Friends, this is in the Bible. That's in the Bible. This pouring out. David talks about how he feels. David talks about his concern. David talks about his problems. And all of that is here in the Bible that God inspired. So friend, we're allowed to do that. You're allowed to do that. Not just allowed to do that. You should do that. What Psalm 69 and other Psalms of Lament show us is that we are allowed to tell God how we feel and what we are going through. We're allowed to notice the things that are messed up. We're allowed to feel wronged. We're allowed to feel like we're alone. We're allowed to say that we have problems. So maybe our circumstances don't line up exactly with David. I don't think any of us is a king in this room. But we end up in the same spot as he did. And ending up in that spot of desperation and drowning and despair, ending up there doesn't take an instant. Usually it comes with wave after wave, day after day, week after week, month after month, sometimes decade after decade. So if and when you are here, be real and tell it to God. Are you disappointed? Tell God. Are you hurt? Tell God. Have you been wronged time and time and again and you've just ignored it? Tell God. Are you confused and see no purpose why what's happening is happening? Tell God. Have you lost someone or something that you love? Tell God. Friends, the Bible is clear. The world is not as it should be. So we should lament. We should tell God. Hypothetically speaking, David didn't have to write this psalm, but he did. And he tells God what he's going through and how he feels. So knowing that we're allowed to do that, how do we do that well? 
I think it's important so we can avoid certain dangers. I'm just going to linger here for a second. How do we speak of our pain? How do we lament well? I think there are at least four different lessons from this psalm that teach us how to do that well, how to, how to process all of this. First, to lament well, we must be God-conscious. We must be God-conscious. Think of God as David's perspective. God is David's passion, even when speaking of his pain. You look at verse 3. David's waiting for God. You verse 9 and others. David wants God's name to be glorified. He's suffering for God. That's not a foreign concept to the Bible. You see also uh, verses like verse 5 and 19. David still knows that God knows everything. He doesn't let what he's going through change what he knows to be true about God. He's able to be honest to God. But his situation does not make him unaware of God. Second, to lament well, we must be self-aware. Look in here at verse 5. David cries out to God in real pain and can speak of how he's a legitimate victim of other people's sin and still acknowledge that he himself has guilt and is a sinner. God allows us to do both things. The fact that God knows all things means that we don't have to deny that other people have sinned against us. But neither, friends, can we deny, if God knows all things, that we have sinned against others. David's self-aware to do both of that. Third, to lament well, we must be others-focused. We must be others-focused. Look in here at verses 6 and 7. So we end up in a drowning and despairing place like David. It's not too often, if you're sinking, that you'll look around and see, hey, is anybody else sinking that I could help? That's essentially what David does here. He's concerned about other people. Just like the instructions you get on an airplane. You know, the beginning when when nobody's ever paying attention. (laughs) And they say, like, if if we're going down and the oxygen masks come out, A, like, it's terrifying. And B, you know, sure, David takes care of himself first. Get on your mask. Pull it. But then look and see if you can help anybody else. David doesn't let even the lowest time in his life let him be self-absorbed. He pays attention to other people and is concerned. So yes, we should lament and pour out our heart to God. But we should lament for others also. We should help them. We should feel the pain of those around us. We should feel the pain of the injustices of our world. And we should look at others and not just feel their pain, but also be encouraged of how God perhaps has brought them through a despairing and drowning time like maybe we're going through. Be others focused. Fourth, to lament well, remember Jesus. To lament well, remember Jesus. The New Testament quotes Psalm 69 several different times. Really, because Jesus is the greater David. Jesus poured out his heart just like David. Jesus, too, carried a heavy weight. He was desperate and overwhelmed. Jesus, too, like verse 4, had enemies who hated him without reason. Jesus, too, like verse 9, had zeal for God's glory. Jesus, too, it was no truer for anyone besides Jesus that to hate him was to hate God. And what David speaks in metaphor How he comes to the end of himself in verses 19 to 21 serves only to remind us of what Jesus actually experienced. That on the cross he was scorned, disgraced, shamed, helpless, abandoned, friendless, literally received sour wine on the cross, a cheap drink that would not satisfy the thirst he felt. So as we lament our pain, we remember Jesus' pain. 
William Plummer says this, There was never such thirst as Christ had. No eyes ever failed as his, because none ever bore such wrath as he bore. Friends, there's no trial or pain that's unique, that Jesus cannot speak to, that we're going through. Jesus can speak to all of them. He bore the greatest possible agony there has ever been born. The wrath of God for sin. So as we lament, friends, don't just remember Jesus' pain. Remember Jesus' actual lament. As one who was despised and rejected by men, deserted by his friends. It's as if on that day, like, Jesus, we're there for you, but we're busy on the day you're, you're going to die. I mean, this, this is tragically comical. And even the Father turned his face away. And Jesus laments all this as the only one who can't say verse 5 of this psalm. Who can't say to God, you know my folly. He laments all of this as being innocent. And his lament goes unanswered. It's as if the Father tells Jesus that the only way for me to save my people is if I don't save you. And Jesus endured that task. He's talking about the power of remembering Jesus when we are crying out in our pain. Well, we spend a lot of time how David cries out to God, speaks of his troubles, shows concern for his pain, a lot for us there. It's not the only thing David does. David processes his sorrow, grief, and anger, and he also prays to God, pleads with him, really, to act, to act in certain ways. The verses here in focus are verse 1, verses 13 to 18, verses 22 to 28. And three rounds, again, of pleading. And that Polaroid is going to get clearer and clearer as we go. Look at the very first line of Psalm 69. David gets right to the point. Save me, O God. What else would a drowning person want? You know, about a person who's drowning. You offer to say, hey, like, you want a million dollars? No, I don't want a million dollars. I want you to save me. Friends, David doesn't expect God's response to be, well, David, I'll save you, but I'll only save you if you help yourself. That's precisely the point of David crying out because he can't save himself. But if you're here and you're not a Christian, know that each person here who is a Christian has cried out in a similar way because they've seen that their sin has brought them to a point of drowning and it will lead to their death. So can't sit, not being able to save ourselves, we cry out to God, save me. Not because of anything good in me. Save me out of your mercy. And it's through God's Son who lived without the sin we have, yet died for the sins of those who would repent and believe in him. And knowing that, we cry, God, save me. Friends, if you haven't done that today, today is the day to do it. Seriously. You got a lot of questions? Sure. I'm telling you, drowning is real. But David's able to take more gasps of air. And his prayer takes on clearer forms, verses uh, 13 to 18. He really centers himself in verse 13. He takes inventory of all the stuff he's going through, all the garbage around him, even the garbage in himself from verse 5. And he sees all that Tells God, you know what, God, I'm in the thick of it right now. But I'm still praying. I'm still praying. One quote that stuck with me for the last few years comes from Don Carson. He says, either worry drives out prayer or prayer drives out worry. Which one is that for you? 
Worry drives out prayer, or prayer drives out worry. What gets you to stop praying, to stop calling out to God? Not even the worst time of his life gets David to stop calling out to God. How weak are we when we're just kind of coaxed into comfort, don't feel like we need God, and stop calling out to him? We look more broadly at verses 13 to 18, and David prays boldly according to what he knows about God to be true. God's love remains. God's proven his faithfulness to him. David said God's not just merciful, he is abundantly merciful. And so he could pray boldly and confidently and just simply, God, answer me. Hide not your face. Make haste. Draw near. Redeem me. Ransom me. David laments. He speaks of his situation, and then he pleads to God. That's a good model to follow. You speak of your pain and take it to the Lord. And knowing what he knows about God, David knows that God won't be silent forever. So friends, in all of our prayers that seem delayed, all the cries that seem like they go unheard, all the desires that seem unfulfilled, all the wrongs in our lives that seem unresolved, we keep on praying. Even when we don't know what to say, even then God's merciful. The Spirit ministers to us in our weakness when we don't know how to pray. Notice here, David just prays simply. He takes his situation. Look at verses 14 and 15. An exact mirror from the beginning of the psalm. He just takes his situation and pleads to God. A simple prayer, but a confident one at that. And knows that God will one day answer. So if you take your car now, beautiful day for a drive, and you go on I-71 South, Pretty soon, you'll leave Cuyahoga County, hit Medina, and then the speed limit goes up. Praise God for that. <laughs> but then pretty soon, uh, you won't see suburbs anymore. You'll see, uh, like the Dixie Chicks call, wide open spaces. And those spaces won't be full of crops. They'll be empty. But the, the ones who take care of those lands, the farmers... They don't lose hope in winter because they know that harvest will come. So, the Christian, if you are in the winter of season in your life, don't lose hope either. The harvest will come because we've seen how the Father answers in the best time and in the best way. We dare say that we have even greater confidence than David than he says here. That God answers prayer in an acceptable time. Because again, we think of Jesus, whose prayers appear unanswered on the cross. But then we think of three days later, and those prayers did not go unanswered. And think of those three days of what that would have been like. Despair, fear, confusion, possibly even anger. But joy came in that morning. And the Father answered those prayers in the mightiest way possible. Vindicated his son. So as Romans 1, raised him in power, declaring to him to be the son of God, giving him the name above all names, giving him the keys of death and Hades, giving him victory over evil and death and sin. We have confidence that God answers prayer. So again, we look at Jesus. But there's one last cycle of prayer, verses 22 to 28. So we take the other, uh, the other thing David does and the lamenting, and if it reaches like its fever pitch in verses 19 to 21, his prayer reaches his fever pitch in verses 22 to 28. And you read these verses, and at first blush, they are not pleasant. At second blush, they are not pleasant. At third and fourth blush, they are not pleasant. David is praying 
imprecations. This is an imprecatory prayer, meaning he's not praying for God to bless his enemies. He's praying for God to curse his enemies. And as he starts off in verse 22, we may think as he goes on, all right, maybe David's going to hold up a little bit. Maybe he'll relent. This is just a momentary lack, a uh, lapse of judgment, lapse of self-control. Maybe David will collect himself again by the end here. But no, as it goes on, after verse 22, it just gets worse. It begins with praying that God would take away his enemies' blessings that are here while they are living on earth, making their lives just awful. And it escalates to verse 28, that God would abandon these people forever, consigning them to hell. Friends, is this how we should process our anger and our grief? Should we include this in our prayers when lamenting something we've suffered even because of other people? Especially, like, those questions become even more concerning when we consider the words of Jesus, who's the one who said, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also is the one who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Maybe this is just the grumpy Old Testament showing its face again. Better to just ignore it, let it have his little tirade, and then we'll go on back to the sweet things of verses 13 to 18. Now hold on, real quick, I know it's late. Take a couple steps back. Think through what David is not doing and what David is doing. And take these words at face value, verses 22 to 28. You read them, and you see David is not taking personal vengeance. He's not taking personal vengeance. He doesn't come to the end of his rope in verses 19 to 21 and says, God, you know what? Time's up. You haven't done your job that well. I'm going to take it into my own hands now. I'm going to go on a military campaign against my enemies. You've run out of time. No, David doesn't do that. Think of David's life. David has lived with the truth. The verse that says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He's lived that etched on his heart. You remember King Saul, the guy who literally threw spears at David when he was playing harp for him. The guy who pursued him. David had several opportunities to kill King Saul, and it would have been justified in everybody else's sight. And David doesn't do that. That's the same guy who's praying this prayer. And that's the same guy. We remember other places like Psalm 83 or Psalm 139. David prays to God to examine his motives. David's not taking personal vengeance. David is placing this in God's hands. You know what else David is not doing here? David is not asking God to do something that's outside of God's character. So yes, we remember a place like Ezekiel 33, 11. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We also remember a place like Jeremiah eleven twenty, that God is a righteous judge, that God hates sin, and sin is awful and outrageous to God. And friends, it's not just the Old Testament that reflects that stance that God has. The New Testament does the same. Even Jesus speaks of sin the same way. He speaks of cities that rejected him, cities where he showed up in the flesh and they say no. He told them, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than it will be for you. That Jesus said that. So Jesus affirms and warns of the reality of hell and judgment. So what should David's prayer teach us then? It should teach us that when we lament the evils and injustices done to us by others, or even done to others that we love, we should ask God to bring justice and end evil, to put it in God's hands. So when we see a picture of a little boy in Aleppo, Syria, who's maybe no more than three years old, 
sitting covered in ash and blood and having a distant, distraught look on his face. We can legitimately be outraged at sin and ask God to end evil, to bring justice, to stop the people who do this. We should be outraged at sin. But from this prayer, we should also remember that this is a true warning for those who never turn from their own way of living, who never turn from sin. That's the kind of people David's dealing with in verse 26. But so even here, in other places where this kind of language comes, where this strong stance against sin comes, those places serve a purpose. Remember what we read in Jonah, in Jonah chapter 3. God sends Jonah to Nineveh. Most of us probably know the story. And Nineveh, for the ancient world, is like the Nazis of the ancient world. And God tells Jonah, you know, go, go to them. Go minister to them. And Jonah preaches the shortest sermon ever. It says, 40 days Destruction's going to come on this city. The shortest sermon ever, the whole city repents and there's this revival. So could it be that language like this serves as a warning and even as a means to get those kinds of people to turn from their way of living? So friend, you may be here this morning and kind of laugh off God's judgment. And think of hell like hell is just some kind of thing that Christians use as a scare tactic to manipulate people. But what if God has you here to listen to the warning of where sin leads? <laughs> to listen to that warning. You think of who this psalm's written to, written for. Again, Psalm 69, written to the choir master. There'd be a bunch of people singing this psalm. And imagine among that group, there are those who fit, the, who fit the bill of verse 26. And they hear that. Friends, if, if that's actually true, if God's stance against sin is actually true, and it's difficult not to see that in light of the cross, then hearing a warning of it is not a scare tactic. It's actually a kindness of God. And don't turn that hand away. So in light of David's prayer, we don't shrink back from a warning like this. In praying through our lament of evil and injustice, we should be serious and sober-minded about sin. Be confident that God will bring justice and be confident that God can even use warnings like this for good. Briefly, we end with David's resolve. Don't worry, we got about 15 more minutes. That's it? I'm kidding. No, not really. We've seen David's lamented his situation of sorrow and grief by telling it to the Lord. And he also prays to God, just lays it out there, and then he gives it to God. And the last thing he does, he closes by committing to praising God. See how the tone of the psalm just turns on a dime at the end? And David starts talking about how he and all these other people are going to do all these great things for God, how they'll praise him, how they'll thank him, how they'll seek him, how they'll be glad, how they'll dwell securely. And there's no insert after verse 28, and David just puts in parentheses, oh, five years later, this is how I feel. No indication that any circumstance has changed for David. So that means Every time we lament, every time we pour out our heart, every time we lift up God and try to trust God and pray to God, it should always bring us to look forward. It should always bring us to look forward. This isn't to say that God doesn't care about our present. God doesn't hear our prayers about what we're going through now. But it is to say that one day, God will end all the things that are lamentable. God will end it. That Knowing that allows David to use his suffering and pain 
not to get bogged down and feel sorry for himself, but knowing that God will one day end it allows David to use his suffering and pain to praise and thank God even louder for what he's promised to do. So for those who are in Christ, they have an inheritance that neither moth nor rust can destroy. That's guaranteed that no one else can steal. And that inheritance only looks brighter and more brilliant when we suffer alongside Christ. So in closing, friends, we should lament the brokenness that affects us. But the brokenness that affects us doesn't have to go wasted in us. What we go through now should make us only anticipate more what we will see then. The healing and deliverances we receive now are just small windows of what will come then. One commentator puts it, learn to look through those small windows and cling to his promised salvation and praise him. Lamenting well. Pour out your heart. Pray, fight to trust in God. And look to the future and praise God for what's to come. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to do all this. God, thank you that we, we don't have to be dishonest. We don't have to just put on a happy face. That we can be real before you. That you know all things. You know all of our circumstances. You know all of our concerns. God, you even know all of our sins. And you love us. And you hold all things together. And you do all things well. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust that you answer in an acceptable time, just like you did for the Lord. So God, would, we bring, would you bring us to praise you for what is to come, that though it seems dark now, joy comes in the morning, when that joy seems brighter and brighter for the rest of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.